Hi, welcome to AmateurLogic.tv, episode 47. I'm George. I'm Tommy. I'm Peter. And it's good to be back with you again. This is uh, our last show before the contest, isn't it, Tommy? Yeah, it is. We'll be telling you a little bit more about that uh, a little later in the show here. You see the gear that we're giving away if you haven't already. We'll uh, we'll give you a little update on that, though. And, uh, Peter, how are things down under? Things are very well there, George. Uh, been having a good time. Uh, been building an antenna. Things are going well. Well, that's good. And I don't guess you're looking forward to Thanksgiving. As... Uh, <laughs> no, uh, it's not celebrated here in Australia. Um, but I, I did notice just uh, quietly in the last few weeks that Halloween is actually being celebrated more and more here. And it's quite funny because a few peop- local people have been saying, um, look, uh, they don't believe in it. It's an American tradition, yada, yada, yada. And uh, I actually uh, looked it up and it's actually from the uh, British Isles. So, <laughs> so it's actually not even originally American. <laughs> Wow, didn't even know that. Well, Tommy, let's get started here. Okay. <clears throat> I've got an email here let's get started with uh, from my friend Larry, WA5TNR. And uh, Larry's talking about, you remember a while back we were they were asking about using uh, Loctite. Well, Larry came back with another solution. He says an alternative, uh, instead of using blue Loctite, is to use a plastic bag of any type like a grocery-type bag. Uh, dart players have been plagued with the tail shaft coming off or coming loose from the body of the dart. And uh, just kind of to summarize, they come up with a solution to cover the uh, the female part of the threads with a piece of plastic and screw the male part down. And it takes up some slack and uh, makes it a lot tighter. Um, okay. But anyway, that's, a, that's an interesting solution. I'm not sure it would uh, be quite as... Uh, as substantial as Loctite, but uh, probably give it some extra. Well, it, I guess it'd be similar to using Teflon tape on something. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah it'd make it unscrew easier later when you try to get it apart. And, of course, on an antenna, that, that would probably work fine. But, uh, you know, if it's something that needs a connection, I guess you got the possibility that you could be putting an insulator in there. But, yeah, it would probably break through the plastic in yeah. some spots. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting concept. It's similar yeah. to some things we've done, like uh, if you have a wood screw wallered out, then you yep. can put a toothpicks in there. Yeah, that, that's a good trick. I've used that before. Yeah, appreciate that, Larry. Yeah. Well, I have an email here, and this one comes from our friend Ray, KB8ILD. And he says, George, since uh, you've been building things for years... I have a question about crystals. Uh, While looking at crystals for some homebrew SDR projects, I noticed that some have two leads and some have four leads. Can you give me an explanation of what the difference is? Well, uh, sure, Raymond. Um, The differences are that uh, a crystal only has two leads on it. And, you know, it's due to its natural properties. It's always sitting there vibrating. So there'll always be the uh, the frequency of the crystal present at those two pins. On the four-pin ones, though, those are clock oscillators. And uh, while they do the same thing as a crystal, they're not exactly the same. Uh, you have to put power to these before anything comes out of them. And I'm not sure of the exact circuits in them if, uh, in fact, there is a crystal and then maybe, um, you know, a little amplifier behind it or exactly what they're using inside of there but 
That's the difference. The one with four pins or clock oscillators, those are active components. And the crystal itself is uh, only two leads. Peter, what have you got for us? Yes, I've got a Facebook comment here, George. Uh, and it's from Ed, KT6F. And he mentions, uh, you might have heard of the SI570, which uh, I believe was used in the Softrock kit uh, that uh, you're, you're building at the moment there, George. And uh, he's saying, look, there's a controller and frequency uh, generator kit available that uses the same chip. chip and uh, it exhibits excellent stability and accuracy. So that's something worth checking out. Yeah, those are uh, very good um, frequency generators there, or oscillators, which is uh, more or less very similar to what we were just talking about. I've used them in a couple of different kits, and I know some people who've used them on some uh, old HF rigs that had some frequency stability problems with the oscillators. They'd build an external oscillator out of this little chip. Well, it's not that big. It's more like that. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> And, you know, use that in place of the built-in oscillator, and then, you know, it's just rock solid as a new rig. And it's a nice little chip. It's uh, programmable. And, well, what else can I say about it? Everybody's using them these days. You can probably find hundreds of kits out there that use that. So it's uh, a very handy thing to have in your tool bag or your parts bin, more likely. Well, Peter, you've been doing a little construction down there, haven't you? Indeed, George. Uh, for quite a number of years, I've actually relied on wire antennas and generally either a 40-meter or an 80-meter wire dipole. But it, I became aware in recent times that, in fact, if your dipole was too close to ground, in fact, you would, uh, to use a technical term, smoosh the signal. In other words, your signal would bounce against the ground and go straight up. So uh, I thought, well, maybe I'd be better off actually building a vertical. And uh, seeing as I had a metal carport roof, that's what I decided to do. Hello, everyone. This month, we're going to have a look at an antenna that I've just built. It's a quarter wave antenna. Now, you know with a dipole, uh, you basically have two ends, which are each one quarter wavelength long. In a quarter wave antenna, one piece, which is vertical, is a quarter wavelength long, and you have a series of radials extending out in all directions, which are each a quarter wavelength long also. And that's kind of like the other half of the dipole. Now, what I've done, though, is I've actually got a flat metal carport roof, about five metres by four metres, and that can actually substitute for all those ground radials. So that's what I'm going to build today. Uh, quarter wave vertical with a uh, using the carport roof as the ground plane. Okay, here's the finished antenna. I've got two pieces of aluminium tubing, each three metres long. This piece is 16 millimetres thick. This piece is 12 millimetres thick. And I've put the uh, this piece inside the other so that this piece is three metres long and this piece... Uh, again, is three meters long, but two meters uh, is from the end of the antenna to here, and there's a meter of this tubing inside the other piece of tubing. So the total length is five meters. I've then affixed the two tubes together with a couple of screws, so they're electrically connected. Up this end, I've got a piece of wood about a meter long, and I bought some copper straps 
which come in on a, horse, in a horseshoe shape. And what I've done is uh, I've folded the, those over and uh, with some screws into the wood to hold that in place. Down here, I've also got a little screw uh, which I'm going to attach uh, a piece of wire to and that's going to run uh, to my ugly balen. Okay, here's the antenna set up all finished and ready to go. First up, we've got our ugly balen, which you would have seen in the previous episode. So we've got our coax coming into the ugly balen. And then the two terminals at the top here, one of them is connected to the metal of the carport, which is about five meters by four meters. And then the other terminal is connected over here to the uh, base of the antenna. I've gone up a little bit. It probably should be down right down the end here, but that probably won't make much difference at the end of the day. So let's just look up. There's the antenna going right up. So how well will it do? Let's see. Well, my antenna's been up for two weeks now. And you're probably wondering, how well does it work? Does it work as well as those big Yagi antennas with multiple elements? Well, the answer is no. Uh, it'll never work quite as well as that. But it does work surprisingly well. You must remember this is a resonant antenna, so it's quite efficient. Here are the countries that I've been able to contact using voice, PSK31, and in one case, a WSPR contact. Uh, I've been able to contact the Czech Republic, Indonesia, Italy, Japan, Madeira Island off the coast of Portugal, New Caledonia, the Philippines, the United Kingdom, and of course the USA. And in case you're wondering how I got those QSL cards back within such a short period of time, I used eQSL. So for less than $30, I've built an antenna that can literally work the world, and you can too. Well, that's a nice project, Peter. And, you know, I'm thinking of building something just like that here for 30 meters if uh, I can come up with enough tubing to reach that height. I need one uh, to put on that open beacon kit that I built recently. And I noticed a couple of Australian terms in there. Uh, the one, the aluminium, is that how you say it? Yeah, aluminium. Uh, I think you say aluminium or, or some strange, <laughs> something like that over there. Yeah, aluminium, something strange, yeah. <laughs> and and then the yeah. the other technical term, smoosh. Smoosh. Oh, no, that's actually a Gordo term. Um, ah, you're right. Yeah, it's a, uh, to smoosh the antenna is to have it, uh, a horizontal uh, dipole is to have it too yeah. close to ground so that the signal bounces straight yeah. up. So that's a California term then. California right. term, yes. <laughs> that, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, that's fun. <laughs> well, it's time to talk about our contest here. And, you know, we announced it uh, two or three shows back, and this is going to be the last show before we actually do the drawing. And you certainly want to get your name in the hat on this one. Tommy, what are we giving away? Man, we're giving away an ICOM IC7200 HF radio right here. That's a nice-looking rig. It is. Great radio. You certainly want to get in on that because it really is a nice-looking rig. I've used it before. Tommy has virtually used it over the Internet, and, uh, boy, it did a great job. We've also got an MFJ 4230 MV power supply. Where is that? It's right over here. Right over there, that's a, a 30 amp switching supply, and the thing is really small. Yeah, I like that. Uh, it doesn't take much space. 
And right below that, what have we got? We've got an MFJ 925 auto tuner. Um, hit the button on the front of it, tunes up right for you. Very nice little tuner. Yeah, we've got the cable that goes <clears throat> from the tuner to the HF rig there so that uh, it all works together completely. You just hit a button on the front of the rig and uh, it tunes the tuner for you. We're going to have some antennas as well. We've got uh, the 40-meter off-center fed dipole, which covers 40, 20, 10, and 6. And we've got the 80-meter off-center fed dipole from MFJ that covers 80 through 40. Uh, what are we going to use for audio? Man, we've got this great Heil ICM microphone. Got the push-to-talk button on it. Great mic. You're going to sound, sound awesome on the new rig with that mic. Yeah, it was made especially for ICOM radios. Yeah. And uh, in case you want to upgrade, if you're not already a general or an extra, we've got Gordon West Radio School training materials from our buddy Gordo. And if you're uh, a technician and you've got limited HF privileges, Gordo's going to fix you up with what? You're going to get a general study guide. A general study guide. And if you're a general. So you get yeah. an extra study guide. <clears throat> uh, of course, we're going to need to wire all this stuff together, the antennas and the rig, and we've got some good cable for it. What yes, is sir. this? We've got some RG213, compliments of the wireman. Yeah, enhanced RG213. Good stuff, because yeah. we all like wireman yes, sir. cable, man. except mm -hmm. for Peter, and he doesn't know what it is, really. Uh, what, what's wireman? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it, it's good stuff, really is. They're, they're at most all of the ham fest, and you can can find their mm -hmm. cable there. And then one final thing, Tommy, are you ready? Go for it. These, they're in the plastic bags, but these are our private stock PL two fifty nine connectors, silver plated, with uh, what appears to be gold plated tips. We're not sure, you know. Faux gold. Faux gold, Santo yeah. gold. The good stuff for yeah. you guys. Yeah, only the best. So how do you win all this stuff, George? Well, that's a good question, Peter. And uh, first, you've got to be a licensed U.S. amateur with a U.S. shipping address because, <laughs> uh, you know, don't get started on that, huh, <laughs> <Yeah>. Tommy? <laughs> I'm glad you took that one. <laughs> uh, and that's because we can only offer this contest to uh, U.S. people this time. Because of the rules on using different type accepted equipment in different countries, uh, maybe in the future we'll try to have an international contest. What's the next qualification yeah. there, Tommy? Uh, only one entry per contestant. Sending more than one entry will disqualify you from the contest. And that's correct. And if there's any taxes associated with the winnings, you'll be responsible for paying those. But believe me, you'll come out ahead if you got all this gear. You'll, you won't mind paying the taxes. Yeah, and uh, the winner agrees to the use of his or her call sign and name in promotional and use items related to the contest. Yep, and the contestants, unfortunately, disqualify us here. Uh, anyone a uh, U.S. amateur can enter, unless you're an employee or affiliate of AmateurLogic.tv, ICOM America, MFJ Enterprises, Hall Sound, Gordon West Radio Schools, or The Wireman. Now, how do they enter, Tommy? You can send an email to contest2012 at amateurlogic.tv with your only your call sign in the subject line. Include your name, your call sign, class of license, and your address in the email message. Okay, and you've got just a limited time left, a little under a month, 
On December the 8th, we're actually going to do the drawing, and uh, the results will be in the December 15th episode, but we'll, uh, we'll actually show the drawing during that episode. It takes us time to get this stuff edited in together. So you have from now until December 8th to get your name in the hat and send that email in. And how are we going to select who actually wins? Well, the contest winner will be selected by a random number of the entry received. The winner will be announced on the 15th episode, as you just said, of AmateurLogic.tv. Okay. Uh, and if for some reason we determine the, uh, the first person who's drawn is not qualified for the contest, then we'll just do the same random type drawing again to uh, determine who the winner will be. And where can they learn more about this on the web, Tommy? All of the rules and information are posted at amateurlogic.tv slash contest. Okay. Um, that's, that's a nice package there. Yeah, this actually, is great, man. Actually, uh, George, Tommy, I can't think of a, uh, a competition being offered with uh, that array of uh, gear all in one package. I've certainly seen rigs. Uh, offered in competitions and various other items, but that's the first time I've actually seen a complete ham station offered uh, in a competition, and somebody is uh, going to be very, very lucky. And you're right, Peter, and, you know, we're fortunate now that we've been doing this a few years, and we've met some nice people along the way. Uh, Ray from ICOM, uh, Bob from Howl Sound, uh, Gordo from Gordon West Radio Schools. Martin Jew from MFJ Enterprises, along with uh, most of the people who work over there. And we've run across the Wireman at the Ham Fest. And, of course, I met Tommy, you know, fighting for a set of PL-259s at the Ham Fest. You know, if it wasn't for the Wireman, I'd have, like, buckets full of these things with no place to put them. I know you would. (laughs) So uh, thanks, everyone, uh, all the manufacturers, for participating in this contest. We uh, really look forward to awarding this next month. Tell me what's on your email stack over there next. And I have got an email here about a topic that came up a little while back. This is from Sean, N7RRB. says he was watching the last two episodes and wanted to point out another Linux application. Uh, this goes back to when we were talking about uh, Linux uh, ham radio deluxe equivalents. He says uh, CQR log is probably the closest thing to ham radio deluxe for Linux. He believes it gets overlooked as just a logging program, but it has the ability to do rig and rotor control, among many other things. Um, He doesn't have a rig that can take advantage of the capability yet, but uh, you can uh, use the DX cluster window and click on it. It has the ability to change your frequency and align your rotor and everything. It sounds pretty nice. Um, He gave us a link, www.cqrlog.com. And I have not had a chance to check that one out yet, but it sounds very interesting. Yeah. And I will be checking it. He said it also is reportedly uh, will interface directly with FL Digi, but he hasn't tried that. Right. So, yeah. Uh, I had a would question. Ru- so, just quickly, would it run on a Raspberry Pi, I wonder? Uh, you know, it'd probably have to be recompiled from that, but don't know the answer on that, Peter, but maybe. Uh, Maybe we can do a little research or someone will send us the answer on that. Mm-hmm. Well, I've got a, uh email here from, I, I don't know if it's Dane or Danny. It's D-A-N-N-E, KC7ZO. And uh, he says, 
and this is referring to some of the surface mount projects you've seen me do on Amateur Logic and the um, soft rock that I'm working on right now on Ham Nation. He says, I see you're using a hobby tool to reflow the solder on there. Uh, would a high-power heat gun work for that? And I don't think I would use a high-power heat gun. Um, the reasons are that the temperature coming out of that little hot air embossing tool is really hot. But the airflow is a little bit less. And so I'm afraid if you had a high-powered heat gun and you stick it down there, you're just going to blow parts everywhere. So, Ooh. yeah, I, I don't think I would go that route with it. Peter, what's <laughs> next on your stack there? I've got uh, an email here from uh, Jeff, N9 India Zulu. And curiously enough, it's again touching on CQR log. He, uh, this is, uh, I think, in response to a query regarding viewers wishing for Linux software that is similar to HRD. And he said that, look, there's none that are, are as polished as HRD, but he has some previous experience with CQR log. Uh, and again, the website's at www.cqrlog.com. Jeff uses it with FL Digi to cover his needs. It's free and it's got its own forum. So that's certainly one that I'll be checking out. So, uh, yeah, he answered the question there, although, mm -hmm. uh, uh, who was it, Sean, uh -huh. had not tried that, but uh, here Jeff has tried it. There's with, confirmation right there. Yeah. It sounds It's probably a really nice program, it sounds like it. Yeah, I went and looked at some <clears> of the screenshots on it. It does look pretty nice. There again, not as polished as uh, Ham Radio Deluxe, but a, a good alternative. Well, Tommy, what have you been building on lately over there at the Z&O Studios? Well, man, I uh, I dug out something that I mentioned a while back. I I bought an Arduino and mm -hmm. I thought I'd give it a spin and, and show some capabilities of it. Fine. With all the buzz about the Raspberry Pi, kind of made me forget about a little device I got to play around with a while back. I mentioned it to you on a few shows, a few shows prior. But anyway, I bought an Arduino experimenter board. Pretty nice little board. You can. Uh, it has fourteen. Digital inputs and outputs can be configured in either way. Uh, it's got six analog inputs or outputs, uh, like unlimited number of add-on. They call them shields, but they're basically daughter boards that snap onto the top of this thing. We'll give it uh, network capability, wireless. There's a breadboard one. If you remember, like probably five years ago on the show, I put together my little basic stamp on the on the show we soldered all the components on the board and everything and uh, george and i did a little um repeater controller type or idea actually type project on the show it's a lot of fun showed the capabilities of the basic stamp and uh i'm going to do similar to this one uh, there are several models of the arduino available this one is the uno which was available at my re local radio shack and you can see they're pretty inexpensive. It was only $35. And uh, they had several of these. I was going to get the Mega, which has more inputs and outputs and so forth on it. No one around here had them in stock, so I went ahead and got the one that was available. But uh, there are quite a few uh, models. Check out the Arduino.cc site for more information on what's available for it. Let's take a little closer look. Here's uh, some of the... The shields I was telling you about, a Wi-Fi shield, Ethernet shield. You can actually create a little web server on this thing and control things over the Internet from your cell phone or a computer or whatever. One for an SD card, 
stepper motors, just unbelievable the amount of things that are available for it, the amount of support. I found quite a few ham libraries out there, some which we'll play with uh, here in an upcoming episode. This is the board I have here, the Arduino Uno. And you can see there your 14 digital IOs, 0 through 13. And there's your ground. You've got six analogs, A0 through A5. Uh, here's your power, a ground, and so forth. Reset button up here at the top left. It'll it'll run off of 5 to 12 volts, I believe. I'll have to look it back up. But I went ahead and I made this little 9-volt adapter that I can plug onto it. Probably one of the nicest selling points for this thing is the ease of programming it. If you've done any programming at all, then this thing, you'll you'll pick up the programming language. And with the examples that they've got, you'll be productive pretty much right off the bat. You can go over here and download the programming language here at arduino.cc. Pick the one for your operating system. And the Mac one, all I had to do was drag it into my applications folder and run it. So let's uh, start it up. If you've done any programming at all, it's going to look very familiar. It's uh, based off of C. They, the files have the extension of CPP for C++, but they're just basically straight C. Whenever you get a new programming language, every programmer starts out writing a hello world it may do nothing but print hello world on the screen. You may click a button and a hello world message box pops up or something. But everybody at one point makes a hello world. Well, this is my hello world for Arduino program, which is the equivalent of my message box. It's going to be a blinking LED. So I soldered this little resistor onto a LED, and I'm going to plug it into my Arduino board to uh, pin 13 and to the ground. And I'm going to use my little program, and we're going to make the LED flash. This is just uh, just to show you that the thing works, uh, how to program and everything. I've got three projects, uh, somewhat involved projects that I'll be building in the next upcoming few episodes that will uh, will show off the capabilities of this a little bit better. I'll be building a fox hunt beacon. And then uh, I got a kit from Dayton, uh, courtesy of our friends at MFJ, a uh, transmitter kit, or actually it's a transceiver kit. We'll, we'll be building the kit and interfacing it with the Arduino to create a beacon. And uh, then I've got some stuff I'm going to do with controlling my rig with it coming up uh, in the very near future using cat commands. So let's take a look at the environment here. It looks just like C. It comes with um, a ton of good examples. If you click on the file menu, go down to examples, you've got basics, which is uh, how to read serial port, serial data, blink LED, which is the basics of what I use to, uh, to create my little idea that I'm going to make here in just a moment. Well, let's uh, let's close this up and go look at the application that I wrote, and I'll kind of explain how it works. You can see the syntax is is somewhat easy. We're going to declare a variable which is an integer. We're going to give it a name of pin, 
and we're going to give it 13. If you remember I said I plugged my LED into pin 13 and into ground, so we're going to address that pin on the Arduino. I define a pause amount, which is 500 milliseconds, half of a second. By default, there's a setup function that automatically runs when the first thing is initialized. It, it defines how the board is supposed to act. It only runs one time at the initialization when the power is applied to it or when you hit the reset button. So we're going to define pin mode, pin 13, remember, and it's going to be an output. Output is a constant, which is already defined in the language. If we were going to read something from it, we would define it as an input. The next thing we've got is a function here called loop, which is the main body of the program. This thing just sits here and it runs over and over and over as fast as it can at, I think, 16 megahertz until from now until the end of time or the battery runs out, whichever comes first. So what this is doing is I, I define my call sign N5ZNO. I made a function for each letter. I probably got went a little overboard with this, but uh, that's kind of how I do anyway. So anyway, dash dot is in, and we're going to play a dash dot. If you go back down to the end function, you'll see dash actually calls another function, which turns on pin 13, raises, puts it high. Um, this was going to be for a tone. We're not going to do that for this. Um, anyway, I was had a little speaker. I was going to beep with it. We're going to do a digital write to the digital port 13, which, remember, which was defined up here, and we're going to raise it high. We're going to wait 1,000 milliseconds, which is one second, and then we're going to turn it off, and then we're going to wait the amount of pause which is a half a second so it's going to come on for um one tenth of a second i'm sorry one second and then it's going to go off stay off for a half a second and then it'll play the next character in five go down here and you'll see five and it does the same thing dot 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 five dots um so it'll play Turn pin 13 high for 100 milliseconds because we want those short, right? And then it turns it off and it waits the same half a second. So I have the same half second pause in between characters. So, and it does the whole thing for my call sign. Waits 10 seconds and then it does the thing all over again. If I wanted it to wait 30 seconds, I could change it to 30,000. 1,000 milliseconds is a second. So just do the math and you can make it however you want. I'll leave it 10 just for the purpose of displaying here. Save our work. And the nicest thing is you just plug the Arduino up and the power light comes on. To make it run, all we need to do is click upload, which is a little right arrow. It'll compile. You can see the bottom the compiling sketch, binary sketch sizes, 1,250 bytes, and there's 32K on my board. So I've only used that much of the memory on my board. And my application's running. And you can see my LED is blinking along with it.
it's it's really easy. I know that is ultra simplistic. Um, look through this section, the examples here. The communication ones are, are really nice. The display ones. Uh, I want to get one of the uh, the uh, LED displays for mine, and I'll be getting a Ethernet shield in the very near future. I realize this is pretty simplistic. Um, a lot of you guys are already using the Arduino and doing some more advanced things with it. But there's a lot of guys out there that watch the show that want to get started with it as well. So I thought we'd start off and look at the programming language and see, show how easy it is. This is an open source board I failed to mention at the beginning. What that means is the plans for it are all out there. You can actually get the schematic, burn the board yourself, um, or, you know, order the parts, put it all together, do every bit of it from scratch yourself. It's all out there, available. Um, parts are easy to get. Um, you can get kits to build it yourself if you want to buy the kit and not have to chase the parts down. Um, it, it doesn't get much better than that for a, a hobbyist experimenter type board. And there's a lot of practical uses for it. Anyway, uh, check out Arduino.cc. And uh, there's a lot of resources out there. Read up on it. And uh, go down to your local Radio Shack or order one. And... Uh, Play around with it. Yeah, the, the Arduino, uh, Tommy, is, is one of a number of uh, small boards uh, that, uh, that are useful for um, prototyping and uh, for uh, basically hacking. Uh, I've actually, uh, as we know, there's the Raspberry Pi, but I've actually come across one called the MK802, which people uh, may wish to uh, have a look at. A little bit more powerful than a Raspberry Pi uh, and maybe better for some high-end stuff. But the Arduino, um, it's got very popular... And it's, uh, it's got there are forums around it, and people are doing a lot of things with it. Yeah, that thing has really come on strong here in the, the last two or three years. And you know, we were big uh, basic stamp enthusiasts. Uh, you know, which was an earlier microcontroller that's still out there and uh, still quite popular, I think, in schools. Oh yeah. But uh, and, I, and I've got a couple of pickaxes sitting out the back, so yeah, those uh, they're are, very similar as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah as a matter of fact. Uh, I did a project here with my basic stamp just recently, Tommy. What, yeah. Look what happens when I push this button here. <laughs> there you are. Now I push it again, and jerkily I come back into focus. Yeah. So I've been playing with it, but after seeing that Arduino, uh, I've got a bunch of the basic stamps that I've been wanting to do something with for a long time, but I'm going to have to get an Arduino. I mean, I've got plenty of uh, digital IOs on the basic stamp, but I don't have those analogs like you do on the Arduino. Yeah, the analogs are pretty handy. They are. So uh, that, that's something I'm looking forward to. Well, I've got another email here, and this one is from Bob, WA8YCD. And he said, this is a very handy tool. I remember seeing one of these once back in my novice days. Did you find the uh, cycles per second to Hertz conversion chart helpful? Oh, indeed, there, uh, uh, Tommy. Uh, you know, uh, we over here, like you, have struggled with uh, you know, going from uh, uh, f feet over to uh, to meters, and this chart is also rather useful. Yeah, it, and uh, I suppose you could do it the hard way with a calculator, but this just makes it so much quicker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's next on your stack, Tommy? I've got one more email. I've got one from Jason, KE7VZW. And this goes back about the FL Rig question. He says he wrote the author of FL Rig to, inqu 
to inquire whether it will continue to make it a priority of its current situation. Um, anyway, he shared with them our site, and he says that the author plans to push far and wide with FL rig. This is uh, goes back about whether it would work on the Raspberry Pi. Mm-hmm. Um, he got actually pasted the the uh, reply from the author. It says FL rig remains a high priority development item. Besides being open source, it's also only cross-platform transceiver control program. You run on Linux, Windows, all flavors of Windows, OS X, and several versions of Linux. So anyway, uh, hopefully it'll run on uh, Raspberry Pi sometime soon. Yeah, hopefully so. I, I want to say I saw where some people were trying to compile it. I'm not mm-hmm. sure uh, where they have got with that yet, but uh, interesting stuff. Well, you know, uh, a month or so back, I went to that MFJ 30, was it 35th? 40th. 40th anniversary celebration. And I, I took my camera with me. We really haven't looked at much of that yet. But uh, here's my tour of the MFJ Metal Shop. Oh, it's a little bit noisier in here. What is this place we're at now? Okay, this is the uh, metal shop where we make all of our electronic cabinets. Uh, Right now, it is punching, it looks like, uh, 12 cabinets. Now, watch the sheet goes under the punches, and and the punch press punches uh, all the holes of the same size, and then... Uh, when it finished punches all the holes of the same size, the turret will rotate to the next size hole and punches all of those holes of the same size. And it continues to do that until all holes are punched. And then the punch will cut apart each one of the cabinets. And then when it's, and it's held on by a thin sliver of metal, now all he has to do is pick it up and just shake it. And that, those are complete cabinets that completely... Uh, built up. Oh, that's amazing. That's a, a lot faster than, say, getting out there with a drill and a file. All the hoes are within uh, one ten thousandth of an inch. So what is this right here we're looking at? It's a transceiver safety switch that makes sure that your transceiver is always loaded and not transmitting into an open circuit. Now this is a complete a complete box that's already been six screen, and the next step here is to fold these four sides, and it becomes a complete cabinet, which is going to show us now. First, you can see the the box is being folded in both sides, and once you get through doing that, um, it's com- it becomes a complete box. But notice that. She only picks it up one time, and she pushes it, and the machine sets itself up, and it gets ready to fold uh, all the complete box handling at one time. The old method, and we have one of the older machines, you can only make one bin uh, at one time, and then you pick up another one and make it the same bin. You pick up another one and make the same bin, then you have to reset the machine up every time you want to make the same bin. This computer control machine will allow you to make all of the bins by picking it up only one time like she's doing it. Now, what we do is uh, we we used to paint the boxes ourselves, but now we buy the metal that is pre-painted, and we've worked with the manufacturer of the metal 
to produce a paint where when we bend it, the uh, edges do, do not crack. Okay, these are the SWR analyzers, the antenna analyzers, and you notice that we uh, we don't use sheet metal screws. What we use is a pressed-in nut, and what he's doing here in this operation, uh, if you can see it over here, we have these little nuts that he actually presses into the metal box, and when we're finished, it's a little hard to see but if you look right here on the side these are the pressed in nuts right here and these things will use machine screws so you can uh, take the cabinet on and off as many times as you want and not uh, have to worry about stripping out the metal because this is an actual nut yeah so so much better than sheet metal screws because sheet metal screw and aluminum you can only run that in and out three or four times and it's history yeah that's right this one you can do it for long as you need it. What we're looking at here is a series of cleaning tanks that when when we do have to paint a, an aluminum box, it will clean the box and etch microscopic pores into the surface of the aluminum so the paint can stick to it a lot better. It gives you a much better paint job. I see, yeah, so it uh, actually makes it a little porous so the paint will stay on there. That's right. It increases the surface area tremendously and just gives you a lot of surface area for the paint to stay on. Well, I had often wondered how you kept the paint on those boxes because I can never get anything to stick when I use spray paint. Very hard thing to do. Are these chiclets or what is this well, in here? Well, this is a, uh, a kind of a rock that's used to uh, smooth the uh, edges of uh, metal parts. Uh, one of the big things we use this machine for is um, the plates of, of variable capacitors that have high voltage on it. If there's any sharp edges on it, it, it will just arc there. So what we have to do is take those edges off, and this machine has got these smoothing rocks in it, and you, you put the uh, capacitor plates in there, and the whole thing just shakes in a real violent manner, and it smooths out all the edges and uh, just takes care of, our, of any arcing problems. Well, that's great, you know, because I had never thought about that, how you get the edges off of there, because surely using a file or sandpaper would take forever. Oh, yeah. In fact, I see one right here. Here, here is one of the uh, plates that's in the capacitor. I don't think this one has actually gone into the machine yet, but you can one side of it is still very... Yep smooth and the other side has got a burr because of the punching process and this process here just smooths it all out but that's a plate uh the state of plate of a capacitor that we manufacture here this is how we uh six screen the labels onto the uh cabinets and it's basically like uh doing uh doing uh, t-shirts now she's got a cabinet that she's going to six screen labels on it. You can notice that she starts off with a plain cabinet and she's six screening that on the front and the back side of it. You can see that this is a complete cabinet, but she six screened the front of it and the back of it at the same time. And by doing it that way, we only have to six screen it once. I mean, uh, what we do next is to bend it here, bend it here, so you can see it takes the form of a box and bend the side of it. And uh, in the early days, what we did was to 
form the box first, you six screen the front, and then you turn it around, and then you six screen the back. The way we do it now to save time and labor is to leave it flat, six screen it once, and you get the front and the back six screen, and then we bend it. It just reduces the cost. Boy, and that is so fast, too. It looks like just swoosh, swoosh, and she's got one done. Yeah. If you look through there, there is a very tightly stretched cloth, and you can see this thing is coated with, we make all these screens here. We assemble the metal, I mean the wooden pieces. We stretch this cloth over it, and then we tighten it by putting a piece of rope there and hold, and hammering it down, and it stretches it. And then what we do is to take a material that is sensitive to ultraviolet light and, and uh, coat the whole thing on it, and then we put a film positive over it, expose it to ultraviolet light. Ultraviolet light will um, harden uh, that material except where the light is blocked by the letters. And then we take a very high-pressure stream of water and spray it and clear out all these open areas where the letters are. And it leaves a screen like this. So when we place it down, put ink over the ink, and when you push it through, goes through those holes and, and makes the letters like that. So it's called a silk screen. Is there actually any silk here, or is that a name that came from somewhere else? Well, the original material cloth type was silk. Now, all this stuff is a synthetic monofilament material. And there's also some screens that's also made of stainless steel, which we used to use, but this material gives you a much better print. I kind of thought that's how this has worked, but I've never really seen it up close or had it explained like that before. So, so that's well, great. Well, you know, during uh, basketball season and uh, baseball season, we go out and buy some T-shirts and make our own T-shirts. <laughs> I guess you could, yeah. These modes right here, this is a mode for the uh, automatic antenna tuners. And you can see these, uh, the, these, the MFJ letters on there. They're stamped out pieces of aluminum uh, that we mode. But the loop modes, the antenna tuner modes, and here's, here's some finished products right here. And we're going to show you the process for doing that. There's a sheet of plastic right now that's clamped into this frame. I can feel the heat, okay. too. And the heat is right here. Okay? The heater is. And then you can see the mode right under that. Now, when the uh, temperature of that sheet gets to the right temperature, and they, they're experts at judging it when, when it needs to be, then all of a sudden this mode would... would be pushed up into it and start to take that form and there are some high vacuum vacuum pumps down there that all of a sudden just draws all that air out and and forms that cabinet well when i was a kid we had a a toy that was called a vacuum form and so this is a a vacuum form on steroids i guess Uh, that's exactly it same thing except it's just bigger I see that that plastic has already sagged, and, and there come the moles. That was quick. Yeah, it was quick. It doesn't take much time at all. Now you can see the fan uh, cooling it off to a point where they can just remove it from the mold uh, without it sticking to the mold. That mold just came out from under, and now all he has to do is to remove the uh, plastic sheet. 
And just trim it and, I guess, punch a couple of holes and it's ready to go, huh? That's it. That's it. You know, that was really interesting, Tommy, the way that they, it all started out with a piece of aluminum. It was pre-painted, but they just took that sheet of aluminum, punched all of these chassis out of there, uh, silk screened them, folded them all in the different machines, uh, put the compression nuts in there. And the whole thing right there in that one plant. As a matter of fact, that tuner sitting right over there mm-hmm. was uh, was made uh, just like they were showing there. So. Yeah, that's pretty amazing stuff. A lot of ingenuity goes into to just putting the boxes together, you know, regardless of what's inside of it. Yeah, so none nice. of them I ever built look anywhere near as good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, I'll have some more uh, stuff from that MFJ visit that I made and uh, some of the future episodes here. Peter, what else have you got from Down Under? Well, my final post, or whatever you want to call it, uh, is actually a post that I put on uh, Facebook myself, on our Facebook site. And uh, I was just querying about uh, polarization. Now, uh, I played around with satellite TV a bit, and you can see that uh, by using different polarizations, horizontal and vertical, you can actually cram more, more channels in to a given space. Now, I was interested in the idea of polarization on HF and whether anybody had uh, played around with that. We got a number of replies back, and one of the uh, interesting outcomes of all of that that I discovered after sort of following up a few links was uh, the fact that uh, the use of cross-polarisation on HF can actually help uh, counteract deep fades. So that's something people might want to check out. Yeah, as as far as, uh, and I'll play devil's advocate here, uh, as far as, you know, taking a, a horizontal and polarized uh, and vertical um, HF antennas and trying to transmit a signal on each of them separately, I don't think that'll work because uh, there's just, you know, the uh, polarization will change so many times throughout the uh, trip from the HF signal there through the ionosphere and all that. At, at those wavelengths, I don't think that would be feasible. But what you said there is that that will help with fading. That is uh, a very good point there. I would see that as being useful. Not exactly the same thing as diversity antennas, mm-hmm. but, uh, yeah, similar, I guess. You know. Um, so uh, interesting concept there, Peter. I wish it would work, and, and it will, like you say, at satellite frequencies, somewhat less at UHF and VHF, and probably uh, not at all on HF. Let's take a trip down south and let's talk to our friend, budget-minded Emil. Hello. Hi, Emil. What's been going on? Well, I've I've been doing a lot of uh, travel with my uh, work lately and haven't spent all that much time in the shack. But uh, I have been getting to use uh, a lot of my uh, – the the items I learned from uh, Tommy, I believe, doing the same uh, with operating from hotel rooms. So – not in the shack, but you make it work when you have to, right? Yep, take your shack with you. <laughs> so what have you got for us this month? Well, this month I have a segment on the uh, WWV uh, radio station to broadcast time and standards uh, signals out for people to use. And for ham radio operators, I uh, figured out with my rig uh, functions how to use that to synchronize or calibrate its uh, receive um, using the uh, 
signals that uh, WWV transmits. So I thought that would be pretty interesting to uh, put a segment together with it. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cheap Old Man Minutes. In this episode, I wanted to talk about the radio station WWV, which has several practical uses for ham radio operators. WWV is in Fort Collins, Colorado, and broadcast in AM, time announcements, standard time intervals, standard frequencies, UT1 time corrections, BCD time code, geophysical alerts, and marine storm warnings. They operate on 2.5, 5, 10, 15, and 20 megahertz. At the dawn, 15 hours, 56 minutes, coordinated universal time. Due to the current atmospheric conditions, I've chosen a 20 megahertz signal source from WWV. And I'm going to demonstrate how it can be used to help calibrate the receiver. In my case, ICOM has uh, provided a calibration marker within the radio that can be used to uh, synchronize the beat of the standard frequencies that they're sending out, which is a neat function. So I'll turn the calibration on, go to upper side band, and tune down 1 megahertz. Instructions in the manual, by the way. And like any musician might do, you could actually tune using that beat or the, uh, the difference between the two frequencies to actually tune it down to a zero beat and therefore aligning your receiver to a standard frequency being transmitted by WWV. That, thanks for watching another episode of Cheap Old Man Minutes from KE5QKR. That's very interesting, Emil. You know, I have never played with a rig that had that function in there, but you kind of left me hanging. I, I, I feel like I didn't get the whole picture. What's missing here? Well... During the segment, I did uh, not want to tear apart my station that's out there. And uh, there, there's a potentiometer, George, somewhat like the old television set tuning tools where you stick the tuning tool in the back of the radio and adjust it. You can get it within maybe three or you know two uh, hertz with just that. So it definitely fits the cheap old man minutes uh, with the free signals being broadcast by that organization um, instead of buying the uh, a very expensive uh, frequency generator, and you know it can get expensive to do other things than that. But that works; and it's very practical. Oh, that's neat. Uh, I've never, like I say, I've never seen a rig that had that before. So that's that's a new one on me. And uh, wow, another cheap old man minute, and we learned something this time around. And what that didn't cost you anything, did it? It certainly didn't, which is why the cha-chings are in there. That's perfect for the budget-minded ham. Yep. <laughs> is is that the only rig that has that feature? That's the only one I've uh, ever heard of. You know, Tommy, um, I, I think, uh, I'm not sure if it's a standard on ICOMs on that model or above, but 
that's the first rig I've seen it on. I don't know if it was a one-off or maybe they're including them in all of the uh, rigs from that point forward. Not sure. Yeah, that's a good feature. All righty, Mill. Good to see you again. And uh, you keep it cheap down there. Are you having a cheap Thanksgiving or are you actually springing for a turkey? Oh, we're we're taking a (laughs) non-cheap old man compliant uh, trip to uh, Florida. So uh, (laughs) that's where all my budget's going. Okay. (laughs) All right, man. We'll see you next month. 73. 73. 73, Mill. Well, it's good to see somebody from another country there, George. <laughs> yeah, Louisiana, almost like another yeah, country. Kind, yeah, kind of. Well, I guess it yeah. used to be. Yeah, yeah. One point. I, uh, I'm very familiar with WWV from my shortwave um, exploits back when uh, I was a teenager. I would uh, often tune in on WWV on either 10 megahertz or 15 megahertz just to see how the, uh, the band conditions were. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah, I guess it would be good for that. Mm-hmm. Actually, I think we had a segment about that uh, way uh, back in the beginning. Jim may have done mm-hmm. he did. done something on that. Yep. Okay, and I've got uh, one final message here, and this is from Steve, W8WFO, from the Echo Link Net that we have. Uh, yeah. Star, do drop in Star. Um, and he wanted to let everyone know that Amateur Radio Newsline producer Bill Pasternak, wa 6 ITF will be the featured guest this Saturday night, November 17th, on the Echolink Newsline Net. He says the net meets every Saturday at 9 p.m. Eastern on the Dewdrop In conference server, uh, which is Echolink node 355800. Uh, according to Steve uh, W8WFO, this is not the original name of that net, but uh, Rather, it's become known as that because uh, for such a long time, uh, those signing on began calling it the Amateur Radio Newsline Net or the Newsline Net. So uh, join uh, Steve and Bill Pasternak and Dave and everyone on the Do Drop In conference server if you're into Echolink and uh, talk with Bill Pasternak. Uh, that's this Saturday, November 17th. And we're just about out of time here, but we got a little housekeeping to do here, don't we, Tommy? Yeah, we do. I want to take a couple of seconds and tell everybody that the wiki is down, that we've been posting the show notes on, and uh, I'm working on getting another one back up in, in its place. But uh, all that content's been saved, but it actually got hacked. Yeah, well, I saw that, and just, what, millions and millions line mm-hmm. of useless the text got posted. Door, screen door advertisements and everything. Yeah. So anyway, it's temporarily down, and uh, hopefully it'll be back up pretty quick. And uh, we'll post uh, something on Facebook and on Twitter, which I think leads into the other things that we were going to mention. Yeah. uh, uh, When it's back up. Yeah. Join our uh, Facebook group if you have not already. Go to Facebook, search for Amateur Logic. We've got a good group of people on there, and there's new postings every day on some interesting topics. And as you can tell, we post on there ourselves. and. you know, try to keep a little discussion going, but there there's so many great people that give us so many good ideas, and oh, yeah. we learn a lot from that. So uh, do check it out, the Amateur Logic Facebook page. And where else can they follow us, Tommy? Uh, we're on Twitter, at, uh, at Amateur Logic. And uh, we've also got a Google Plus page, but uh, it's not very active. No, it's not as active on there. We'll post on it uh, whenever... We're going to uh, release a new show, but 
uh, that's pretty much it because the Google Plus does not work the same way as Facebook and, and, and yeah. you know yeah it's a good it's a good service but it's just not quite the same yeah so uh, everyone once again a reminder uh, we're in the home stretch on the uh, ICOM Howl Sound MFJ Gordon West Radio School and Wireman contest here and you certainly want to get your entry in if you have not already. Go to AmateurLogic.tv slash contest to get all the details. But remember, only enter once, uh, or you will be disqualified. And uh, someone's going to have a nice Christmas present this year. Oh, yeah, they sure are, man. It's uh, loaded. It's loaded. And we're going to have to get that rig out here and play with it a little bit within the next two or three weeks, or we're not going to have a chance. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, uh, thanks for being here, everyone. And uh, remember, tell all your friends about Amateur Logic, uh, AmateurLogic.tv website, or on YouTube, or also on Roku. And we're getting a lot of uh, lot of views on Roku now, so we're mighty happy uh, to have that going. We've got over a thousand subscribers on the Roku channel alone, which is pretty incredible. Well, and oh, wow. in such a short period of time. Yeah, yeah I didn't realize there were that many. Yeah. So that's it for episode 47. Yes. 47. 47. Hey, we're not <laughs> far away from 50. We're getting close. I was just yeah. thinking that earlier today. Yeah, we may need a celebration. Yeah, I still have half a bottle of wine yeah. left over we, there. We hadn't had one celebration <laughs> since last month. Yeah. <laughs> we had two <laughs> then. <laughs> we should hit it about March or April. March or April. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're probably right. Unless mm-hmm. we have some extra episodes in there. Mm-hmm. So uh, thanks for joining us, everyone. We will see you again on the December 15th episode when we're going to give away this prize package. And uh, as much as we'd like to keep it, we got to give it away. So 7-3. Yep. Uh, Don't forget to send your entry in, 73. 73's from down under. If you're a general, you're going to get an advanced study guide. <laughs> you're not going to get an advanced study guide unless he's trying to it's, clean out the closet. It's, 